Captain Picard, priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Am I ready, Roman? Readier Room, not to be confused with Matterstream. Uh, this is the only TNG rewatch podcast with actual onset stories from those who were there. My name is Mitchell Mells, Chief Consultant Services at Paramount, and with me is my life partner, Brandon Hobbs, Head of Resources Management. Brandon, how are you doing on this fine Valentine's Day? Oh, I am doing great, Mitch. Um, just, just a little bit of spoilers, I guess, for the audience here, but I am very excited to be discussing uh, what is probably the first decent episode we've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the, the high watermark of the series so far. So we are certainly head over heels for this episode. Love is in the air everywhere. It's Valentine's Day, struck by Cupid's arrow. We got it all going on. Speaking of things we got going on, we have our question of the week. Are you excited? Yes. Very so, excited. Our first question of the week, of any week, comes from our Readier Room fans. This fan is known as the Greek Hoplite. Ooh, not going to get into any Spartan wars with him, you know. So, he asks, please tell me the bagel preferences of the cast members. And you wouldn't believe this. But oh, no. I get this I question. I think this is something we're actually yeah. very qualified to answer. We are, uh, and it's it's a question I've been asked time, before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are all those times where you know, um, you know, food services couldn't couldn't really deliver on the bagels, and then we would go uh, go pick them up for the cast, right? Right. We've we've been there, on the ground level, like on the beaches, getting these bagels. So we know exactly. I mean, I've had to put in this order before. It's it's really amazing. So. Everybody in life has their own personality. Everybody in life has their own tastes. Nowhere is that more true than with our cast members uh, over at TNG. Everybody was different. So, you know, you had Brent. He always had his everything bagels. He said, give me everything but the kitchen sink on that bagel. And we did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Gates, a little more health conscious. Just a plain bagel, a little bit of cream cheese. Was very unhappy if you put too much cream cheese, but a reasonable amount. Uh, Will Wheaton, he always got the salt bagels, which are pretty good, but he'd always eat them by first, like, licking the salt off the top of the bagel, which yeah. I, I never tried it, but it was always a strange thing to see on set. It, it was unsettling to watch. He was, he was really making love to his bagels. Yeah, well, I mean, perfect for Valentine's Day. Oh, that's true. Very thematic. Love is in the air. Um, so Patrick Stewart, he would get uh, an egg sandwich on a chocolate bagel. Always specified it had to be chocolate. Um, let's see. Jonathan Frakes. What did he get? Oh, my God. So Jonathan Frakes, he insisted always on having an onion bagel because, according to him, onions are an aphrodisiac, he would say. Mm. Um, I don't know if that was the source of his powers or what, but he did not go a single day without an onion bagel. It was really but, bad because sometimes, like cast members would have to have like a like a close up dialogue scene with him, especially like the female leads who he kissed, and his breath would just be so oniony. 
like we we always <laughs> have to warn right. people. That's right. Oh my god. And anyway. the wonderful thing about Frakes is you could never tell when he was he was kind of joking about something. Yeah. Yeah. Or if he was being serious. And you know, obviously he would eventually take that talent on to fact or fiction. Right. 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 When he would uh, you know, propose these seemingly outlandish events, but Right. For the first like couple seasons, you know, we'd have a chuckle with him. It's like, huh, aphrodisiac, right? And he'd be like, you know it. Um, but after like five, six seasons of insisting on eating onions every morning, I uh yeah. I, I have to believe he was being serious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's John. Um Denise, uh she had a chocolate chip bagel, but more often than not, she would just eat the chocolate chips, like pick them out of the bagel and then cast it aside. Um, which explains the complexion that she had on the show. Uh, let's see. Marina. <laughs> Marina was always a bitch about this. Like, we'd offer to get her a bagel, and she'd be like, no, I'll have a slice of untoasted white bread unbuttered. And we'd be yeah. like, really? Like, that's what you're going to yeah. eat? And just every well, I day. Mean, and we had to get the bread special for her. Right. It was It was not, you couldn't just go to the, the grocery store and get, like, a loaf of Wonder Bread and have marina eat it throughout the week it was always like you have to get from my special bakery a slice of right. sandwich bread with the right thickness and god help you if a speck of butter lamb oh my god but it was it was always a different bakery than the bagels yeah god so forbid we, we right to make two trips. yeah yeah it was insane i remember Absolutely insane. she didn't specify the bakery until we told her where we were going to get the bagels and at that point mm -hmm. she's like no you got to go somewhere else Ugh. right i'm still Just hangry about it like, no, I, 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 I think about this probably once a week. Yeah. yeah. Every time I see a bagel. Or white bread for that for that reason. She could have, like... Now you got, you got me fired up now. Not not everybody ate bagels, so that's fine. But, like, to... Right, right, right. To just insist so heavily on having something so specific. Like, bring your own white bread. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck. Seriously. Seriously. Jesus. Just take care of yourself, then. Yeah. I mean, so that's, you know, precisely what LeVar and Michael did, because they, they both refused to eat bagels. Uh, right. Citing it as, quote, white people shit. Yeah, I, I think um, that was more Michael than LeVar, but LeVar was more than happy to kind of play along yeah. with it, like with his cool yeah. older brother, you know? So. And uh, here's here's a little extra tidbit for the audience. Um, Gene would not eat bagels either. Uh, oh, citing no, it not this. Not as this. Uh, for cultural reasons. Um, but what he would do is take the entire tub of cream cheese we supplied for everyone and just eat from it with a spoon. I have the image in my mind of just like a spoonful of cream cheese and it and making it its all way to Gene's mouth. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he really tucked into that. You know, maybe maybe Marina wasn't so unreasonable. Like, no butter, no muss, no fuss. Just Well, I mean, at least Gene kind of took care of himself. We didn't have to make any special trips. That's true. I mean, I don't know if I would so. call eating cream cheese by the spoonful taking care of oneself, but, you know. But At least we didn't have to worry about it. That's true. What, what, what's cool about this, though, is that, and, you know, we on set would talk about this all the time, is how the breakfast orders of everybody kind of gave you these windows into their personality. Definitely. Yeah, so... Like I said, this isn't the first time I've been asked this, and I think fans know that when when you're really interested in a celebrity, it's the the minor details of their life that really tells you more about them than any kind of like you know entertainment interview ever could. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So this is valuable insights. 
So thank yeah, you. I, I hope I hope the audience has gleaned something. Yeah, from, I, from the. I hope the Greek hoplite has gleaned something before he, you know, is on his way to uh, clash with um, that guy who brought the elephants over the mountains. You know. <laughs> oh, that's right, Mitch. But that's not our only question of the week. You got one more for us. Question? Yeah. So our second question is from I.R. MacGyver. Um, he asks. Did he put Patrick this question Stewart... together with like some string and bubble gum? Uh, uh-huh. So this is actually a really good question. Really? Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's so how did Patrick Stewart really like his tea? Oh, because he's always right? drinking tea on the set. They're on, on the show. Tea. Yeah. And so the reason this question is so great is because it's, it's a really good example of the way expectations on television can really color our perception of what we see, right? Mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart never drank tea on set, ever. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, every time he was filmed drinking tea, it was actually Coca-Cola. Right, but because, right? The, but, you know, that's brown, like dark. Yes, yes. Yeah. Since, you, since you're told it's tea, so your brain just tricks you. And, like, it's absolutely crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And you would never know that just from watching it. Like, you, it right, never zooms right. in, and the it wasn't high definition. You're not going to see, like, the, the fizz or the bubbles of it. Um, it's only something you would know if you were there. And right. Luckily, but, uh, for, luckily for MacGyver, we were there. He loved his Coke. The he amount did. of refills he would get when he's off camera. Right. Remember that? It, it was so annoying, though, because, like, he would drink a bunch of Coke that he would, like, accidentally belch while we were filming. Whether he That's was right. he was on screen or off, and it would get picked up by the microphone, it would just ruin so many takes. And we're like, Patrick, put down the coke! Oh my oh, god! But a lot of celebrities in the '80s had coke problems, so I, uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, but yeah, so everybody, thank you for these questions. Uh, if you have any questions of your own, feel free to email them to us at theReadierRoom at gmail.com. Uh, that's with a capital T, a capital R, and a capital R, so it goes to the right place. And we're taking questions. Anything you want to know about the cast, production, we got you covered. That's right. So, today, we are talking about episode 5 of The Next Generation, otherwise known as The Good One. Um, this one, where no one has gone before, as we mentioned, we're both very excited about it. So, what's mm-hmm. got you so excited? Well, first, I must note that uh, this episode takes its title, as any any fan would know, um, from the original series, first season, third episode, where no man has gone before. Mm-hmm-hmm. And this is the first time I think that uh, Trek has really come together, you know, for this series. We're, we're treated to a very Trek-like story, I think. Yeah, up until now, it's not been very Star Trekky. It's been like, how do you know how to describe it? Aside from like ridiculous, but yeah, or more maybe more maybe more Star Wars. I don't know, but just you look at maybe more lost in space, maybe more lost in space, maybe more lost, which hadn't been filmed yet. Um, but you look at the Star Trek movies, like the original series movies. Mm-hmm. And the tone of those, the tone of like this, where like they'll just have like a, a long, silent shot, like they're trying to imitate two thousand one, and then this where like Tasha Yar is fighting with black people, 
um, on a jungle gym. And it's right. worlds apart. And then this, this episode starts, and the tone is just, and the pacing is immediately just slower, more very different from what you come before it. So you're immediately thinking, oh man, I'm going to get something different this time, something new. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it, it, it's slower, but it's never boring, really. It, it's never boring. Uh, it's, it's confusing sometimes for some reasons, several <laughs> reasons, but it's never boring. Yeah. And I, I think it's okay, first of all, for sci-fi to be just a little boring sometimes, um, if it's in service of establishing, like the science of the science fiction, you know. Yeah, people have such a um, disdain for what they call techno babble, but I really don't. I don't get it. It's like, yeah, I understand that a lot of these things are. You know, I don't. I don't know the science behind it. I don't get it. You don't get it either. But it's like those things are very key to making science fiction what it is. To to having reasons that things work the way that they do, instead of just it essentially being magic. Yeah, but I, I don't. I don't think Star Trek has ever really gone into the realm of techno babble. You might have a throwaway, a throwaway line here or there, you know, about how something is working. You Tacky know, by ones. by. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't. I don't think that's ever been an issue with Star Trek, really. I don't think it's been an issue either, but I do think that many people do think that because I, I I hear that very often. Um, it's like, oh, the techno babble, and that you know. We've used that term on set before to to talk about, like, some of the lines of dialogue. It's not that it didn't make sense, because it did, because it was sourced from, you know, scientists and people who knew what they were talking about. But just because it's so impenetrable for the common man. But I just don't think that's a bad True. thing. True. Well, you know, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just intelligent writing is what it is. You have to be intelligent to understand it. That's all. It's a very highbrow show. It is. It is. But anyway, so this episode um, is about a very science fiction-y thing. Like, mm-hmm. we, the, the Enterprise travels, um, it, it breaks, like, all known possi- possibilities of how fast one can warp travel, and they end up in completely uncharted space, like, hundreds of light years away, that they would never make it back home uh, before they died. Right. And... That's a very cool concept because it's not like we get there and there's like undersea space monsters and we have to fight them. It's just, we're just kind of lost. What do we do? What, what do we think yeah. about that? Yeah. Um, my personal opinion is that with a few tweaks, this could have easily just been the pilot. Yeah, that would have, that's a good idea. And I think the problem with the, well, I mean, we talked about the problems with the pilot, but it's like, why would you introduce the show with such a, a unique element that's not going to be seen in in more than a handful of other episodes, namely the Q stuff. Mm-hmm. Like what you see in the pilot, you just never see again. There's no omnipotent being again, other than a very few Q episodes. But with this episode, yeah, it, it, it's definitely not that dynamic. When you see Q again, the dynamic is completely different. Right. You know what I mean. So it's just. Uh, but go ahead. If you loved what you saw in the pilot, you might be disappointed by what's coming next if you if this was the pilot and you loved this this is pretty indicative of what tng is mm-hmm. and it's not a story that involves like 
there's like two extraneous characters, but there's not like a whole new society. It's not a whole new planet. It's just on the Enterprise with the Enterprise crew. So it's a good well, so opportunity to introduce all of them. Even if they wanted to keep the Q idea, they could have worked Q into this kind of episode. That's true. If you replace no. the Traveler with Q, I don't think you would need to do a lot of rewriting to make that concept work. Right. It's, it's just it's just a difference of the Traveler being benevolent and Q obviously being kind of mischievous. So it's it's really just the latter half of the episode that changes in that way. True. Where basically what would have to happen is the Enterprise has to be resourceful and figure out what they're going to do to fix what where Q has left them off. You know, you know what I mean? Right. And Which actually would have been very interesting. It would have been. And it makes more sense in a way that Q would would uh trick this engineer and like use him as mm -hmm. a uh um as a vessel for what he's doing rather than this benevolent being who is also just lying to this guy's face and manipulating him. Right. Which, wow, I I think we just we just solved season 1 of Star Trek. Throw it out, rewrite the whole thing. We're coming back. Uh, that's it. That's it for the episode, everyone. But it is worth noting that they do kind of use that um, that setup for a Q episode in in a couple seasons yeah, when they, they introduce do. the board. They do. Yes, they do exactly. And the only way they get back out is like, I think Picard concedes to Q. He's like, "Oh, Q, we do need your help." And then Q's like, "All right," right. and then teleport you back to wherever you came from. Which isn't like a very satisfying conclusion, but at the same time, it's not one that would have worked with the cue that they introduce in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, because because that episode was all about you know how great humanity is in the face of this godlike being, right? But that's also why that episode works so well, is because it's exactly what we were just talking about. It's it's uh, you know, you you get stranded billions of light years from home by some omnipotent entity and you have to figure out how to get yourself out and i guess you know sometimes it is just kotoing to it right yeah it's it's such an interesting premise that it serves as the entirety of star trek voyager <laughs> that's true <laughs> um but yeah i guess yeah, I, I guess this this season, obviously, it was kind of uh, they didn't really have much direction in terms of where they wanted the story to go uh, from here on out, except for apparently the Wesley character. Yeah, which um, what is set up for Wesley here plays out over the entire seven seasons of the show and is resolved yeah. in the final season. Yeah, which is yeah, I'm, I I you haven't seen that that episode, right? The conclusion um, of this. I didn't see when it aired. No. Okay. So I was I was a little I was a little checked out by then. I think I you know right. I I kind of got used to seeing things on set and imagining what they would look like. Well, the thing is, when you're on set, you don't see like the edited version of it, so you might see the filming, but you're not really going to be clued into the intricacies of how the story plays out. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they're filming ah, well. like a one-on-one -on -one scene with Wesley and Picard. How many people are really on set for that? You know. And that could be integral to the plot, but so that, I guess it could be. I don't. Know. I I I feel like I got the gist of most episodes by by the end. Yeah, the gist, but something like a character's uh, final conclusion, you need the concrete details of that. But really, the point I'm getting at though is not about the events, but just that episode itself, the way it premiered and finished and was edited, was just not very good. So, um, 
the payoff for this 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 the confusing befuddling uh, episode was was in and of itself bungled and <laughs> it's like great great like this this is what we had to endure that for and you can you can flip whichever one of these episodes this and that refer to and it's still not satisfying um yeah it was a bad arc at the beginning and it was a bad arc at the end well it's, it's interesting that that arc even came up to begin with yeah uh, or like it was devised in this way because i mean so you'll remember the story team picked this script up from a couple of independent writers right oh yeah 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 yeah. so one of one of them was uh they wrote that stupid novel oh fuck i mean there's a billion stupid star trek novels. there's a billion of them whatever so one of them wrote some stupid star trek novel right we we don't we don't read them because they're not canon because um, why would you you're going to be So, <laughs> you'll remember there was a big shakeup with this one because we had a lot of clashing opinions with, mm. the, with the writer's room on the original script, right? Yeah. And so what happened uh, for the audience is uh, a bunch of people got laid off. And was, the script called was... called it Black Thursday. It was, it was, it was, it was a Black Thursday indeed, and and the the script ended up being rewritten internally, um, to, to almost unanimous agreement, I might add, um, to feature an adult alien with whom Wesley would have an implicit, I guess, sexual relationship. Yeah, right. It was yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe more than implicit. I'm not really sure. But uh, m- my point is, is this sort of the end of introducing this arc that we're talking about? Right. Uh, which is surprising to me that, like I, like I just said, it's, it's surprising to me that they thought of this like this early on. Um, perhaps more importantly, though, um, it served to bring attention to the, the burgeoning and I guess at the time much maligned Matt movement. Yeah, uh, for those not in the know, that's that's minor attracted person. Well, as we all know, that movie. started in Hollywood, so this was like the kind of the yeah. Hot this this was it. the jumping off point. Right. This was the jumping off point, and you know, it's. I think it was a really important decision. Um, I think we can we can all say this was another win for for inclusivity here. Right, and it it was it was great. Of course, I'm all for inclusivity. It was a very diverse show. Um, I think I think it could have been handled a little better. Like they had the idea, okay, we're gonna hire like a map uh, aligned individual just to really bring it home because everybody always has these issues when somebody who's not of a certain group plays somebody who is, you know, right. um, uh, with transgendered people. That's a big issue now. Um, so we were kind of getting ahead of the game. We're gonna hire one of these people to be, play this role. It'll be great. Um, and we there was a lot. He gave a lot of input on what. A, a map aligned individual would be like how they would act um so a lot of the the way that he spoke his tone uh were, was his input the way that he interacted with wesley physically that was a lot of his impro- imp- uh, improvisation um it really gave the show an air of authenticity um now it, in kind of a funny story wesley didn't know that not Wesley, uh, Will. Will didn't know that. Uh, Will, Will. Right. I always get the two confused. It's hard to separate the two, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Will didn't know that the actor was going to kind of like take things to this next realistic level. 
and there's quite yeah. a few takes of um of will just looking like incredibly distraught over what was happening but he, <laughs> he was very taken aback <laughs> right he he was new to acting he was a child actor he hadn't had that many roles yet so he didn't really know how to roll with it when somebody's improvising with you and uh right. i think it was frakes who pulled him aside and was like you know this is show business this is you know how you gotta respond to these new things it's not always going to go by the script you know you got to be ready for improv and you got to be as quick as they yeah. are um as, especially as a child actor right 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 so you know he tried to get in there uh will tried to be you know physical himself sometimes a little inappropriately but you know he was trying we all appreciated that um yeah it was pretty valuable and i like that on our set we were able not only to um you know utilize great talents but cultivate and bring up new ones you know mm -hmm. so definitely i i i couldn't be more happy with the way things turned out with with the script and this character and this actor all kind of culminating into this this big show of support for this uh really uh minority community you know right it was it was a true celebration of diversity i like to say which i think star trek is known for you know every, very very well known for everybody we were really pushing the envelope with this yeah i mean everybody talks about the interracial kiss in the the 1960s and now after tng aired everybody was talking about the map relationship first on-screen map relationship in television another big milestone for the star trek franchise huge milestone yeah but i think that not from a production point of view but in the final product that um dynamic didn't work so well for me because of the way that it was kind of clumsily put into the show like we know why it was put in there but uh if you don't know that it just sound it just comes off as a little clumsy and you have this yes that guy's the catalyst for the events of the of the plot but i never found him as interesting as uh the struggle the characters were in itself no he's not and you know that's again we're going back to you know, what we started out with this episode where it really just it doesn't put the enterprise in a situation where they're allowed to solve anything themselves right the, the entire episode they're, they're relying on like he makes a mistake uh i'm not sure if because i think i think the reason that's given is he was distracted i'm not sure if he was distracted by wesley, by, by wesley yes <laughs> and how sexy he is uh but he, I think the reason that's given is he makes a mistake, and that's why they're left, you know, out in the wilderness of space. Uh, but he also passes out, right? And we just have to wait for him to wake up for them to save, or for him to save them. So what distracts it's, him? It's not it. What distracts him about Wesley is, is two part. Yes, it's like his boyish look, but it's also Wesley demonstrates um, a profound understanding of the the calculations that he's putting into the the engine. Yeah, of course. So for the third episode in five episodes, Wesley demonstrates his superhuman abilities. Right. <laughs> Which um, is a well they keep going back to and will soon be dry. But <laughs> so compared to the Q episode, like Picard learns humility in, in accepting that he can't do something without Q's help. And that's what saves the crew. In this, it's like, all right, we're going to force this guy to wake up, putting his own life at risk because he's passed out and they revive him prematurely. And all they do is literally wish for a good outcome. And that is the extent of the Enterprise's involvement in this. And so can I, can I just, you know, quick aside here. Mm -hmm. They, 
pay a lot of lip service to the fact that Crusher, the doctor, cannot treat the traveler. Right. But apparently her medical tool to revive people works on him. Yeah, I don't know if that's like an actual medical tool or like a taser or what, but it uh it apparently can wake this guy up not once but twice. But yeah. I was I was just a little thrown off by that bit. It's 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 just plot convenience, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I I get that. I get that. I would describe but... 99% of what Dr. Crusher does as plot convenience. <laughs> like that time she brought somebody back from the dead few episodes ago. right right well so she, she and troy are basically the same kind of plot device yeah um well so with crusher I, I don't know really what anybody was thinking but there was a reason for troy's um i guess plot convenience whatever you want to call it so dr crusher always does exactly what is needed for the plot she'll revive the dead she'll um be able to operate on beings that she previously could not comprehend their biology, you know, whatever. But Troy is like a very mm -hmm. consistent, um, oh, I don't know how this guy's feeling, or this guy who is or displaying very obvious arrogant traits is feeling very arrogant and self-confident. Like, she, she gives the most obvious answers. and the Obvious, but also inconsistent. Yes. And you might be thinking, like, well... She's a Betazoid, right? She should be clued, or clued into exactly what people are thinking. And that's the point. So the idea is that Troy, who presents herself as a Betazoid, was not actually a Betazoid. And it would be like season two or three. It would come out in an episode. And it was supposed to be a piece of like metafiction. Because yes, the characters on the show are feeling betrayed by Troy because she lied to them and for whatever reason. But so is the audience. The audience... um had spent all this time getting to know Troy and liking her and getting attached to that character that when it was re revealed that she's a fake, it would be like a very upsetting moment. And it was a very... Wow. Yeah. It, it was such a high-level bit of writing to to lay these seeds early. And we kind of see that very strongly in this episode when they ask Troy for um, her input on things. Now, unfortunately, there's a wrench thrown into this um, in that we would regularly poll our audiences on what characters they liked in TNG. And, you know, at the top was always Data, by a large margin, number one. Um, and at the bottom, also by a large margin, would always be Troy. And it's it was so disappointing because they can't pull this bait-and-switch relying on the audience being attached to this character if they hate her. And right. yeah, boy, yeah. did they. So they had to abandon <laughs> that plot, but... Once they abandon it, you can see at the same time a rise of scenes that are just Troy in her therapist office, like doing her job well uh, by giving you know, therapy to the crew. So once they didn't need her for this plot device, they could actually use her as a therapist effectively. So, you know, God shuts a door, but he opens a window, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I can only imagine, uh, you know, her low popularity was probably due to her, her hairdos. Yeah, in these uh, episodes. I mean that's that's the same reason that Data was so popular, just because of how attractive Brent Spiner is. But oh, he was very very attractive. I mean, I I had a hard time controlling myself on set. With him right, around. right. I he got a lot of fan mail. Let's just say that. But yeah. Troy was nothing against Marina Sirtis, but the way that they designed her look, her costumes, her hair style was meant to be yeah, just not 
I don't know what it's meant to be, but it was just not very appealing at all. Uh, I think we likened her to an insect at times. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The the beady black eyes certainly not helping. <laughs> so, but anyway, oh. so in this episode, they have the traveler. He comes up. Um, actually, I want to say something at the very beginning of this episode. The first five minutes, maybe four minutes, first couple minutes of this episode are so strange in their tone from star trek before it and star trek after it um Mm -hmm. it starts with like an argument between basically everybody on the bridge is just having this passive aggressive uh discussion about the engines and the guy and the engineer coming aboard the ship and it's what's strange about it is that like there's no context for their frustration or their anger or anything because we're used to these guys working along and getting along pretty well so it immediately starts, and you're like, what? And then they go, Riker goes to the engine room to meet this engineer who comes on, and he just takes off like a fucking hurricane, just insulting everybody, demanding that uh, he see the captain, not Riker, undermining Riker's authority. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very fast-paced, and everyone's very antagonistic towards each other. Right, for no reason. Like, the only person you have that you believe would be antagonistic is this engineer, and that's only because you don't know him. But the engineer, the, the engineer, engineer Argyle. No, not that engineer. engineer Argyle. There's two engineers. So Argyle is the one who works on the Enterprise, who's like a like a nothing. Oh, oh, oh. Well, no, of course. I, I thought you were talking to the Enter- Enterprise engineer. Of no, course no. He would be in tech because you got another engineer coming on from. Oh, that's true. He does. He is kind of antagonistic towards this guy. But this guy who comes on with the Traveler. Remember, there's two of them. He's also well, just yeah. a dick to everybody. So truly, well, everybody no is just a huge asshole. I mean, there's, there's no a, reason for him. There's a there's a reason for the guy coming onto the Enterprise to be a dick, but it's not an in-universe reason. It's it's like a, it's a writing reason. Um, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So well, okay. Let's 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 dig into that one. Right. So this this guy, this foreign engineer, comes on and starts like berating everybody. Um, the reason he is so blockheaded and rude as he is uh is because he's actually based on somebody so gene gave input on this character and he's like i need you to base this character on my ex-wife's current boyfriend um so the story goes that whenever gene would meet this guy you know whatever divorce proceedings or whatever um he would just kind of get like belittled by him a little bullied gene really did not like the guy and he was more he was definitely in that kind of arrogant chad space so mm-hmm. gene was like well, that's a great personality to have as an antagonist on on the show so we're gonna bring this guy in he's gonna he's gonna behave just like uh my wife my ex-wife's boyfriend and then eventually he'll uh get his comeuppance because somebody who acts like this is definitely gonna be hated by the audience and it'll be a great force to see um yeah yeah so he comes on and it kind of works pretty well. By the end of the episode, he's reduced to like this incompetent crying mess because all of his prowess was given to him by the traveler, and he just kind of owned it, even though it wasn't really his. And completely emasculated, right? Completely emasculated by the Enterprise crew themselves, who get to the bottom of it. You know, somebody like um, Picard, who you know is is key in in upending this guy. You know, Picard's old he's aging he's bald he's not like at the fit of his physical game 
really became a stand-in for Jean in this interaction. So, it was the first documented use of Star Trek as a tool of revenge, I like to say. Mm -hmm. And And it won't be the last, either. It won't be the last. And it made for some pretty good television, because sometimes, you know, they always say life is stranger than fiction. The the people that we meet can really be good pieces of inspiration, I want to say. Yeah, and uh, I, I do hope, you know, the, the audience can uh, kind of appreciate this episode in a new light knowing this, because there's, there's a, a lot to pick out um, with this in mind throughout the episode. Right, but that's, that's just one of the two engineers we see in this episode. <laughs> just one of the two engineers, and I, I know we definitely want to talk about this other engineer um, because... Because he's named after a sweater. He's, he's, not only is he named after a sweater... Uh, I, I actually think it's a pattern. Ah, you're um, right. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's also, you know, kind of an enraging story. It's right. It's a dark spot in in Trek TNG history. It's it's definitely a dark spot. So, Chief Engineer Argyle. Um, we actually had to look his name up after watching the episode, even though they probably said his name. I'm not really sure. I, I don't think um, they did. I, I'm not sure if they did, but either way, the point is, is he's a very unremarkable character played by a very unremarkable actor. Mm. Um, really makes you wonder why he's even featured to this extent, despite never showing up before, because engineering is a, is a pretty important place. I mean, we've spent quite a bit of time, even over, over the course of the, you know, the first four episodes, dealing with engineering. Mm. Um, and... In obviously in the original series, you have Scotty, right? Right. Um, who's basically the face of engineering. He also beams so, people up. He beams people up. He beams people down. Right. He's a beamer. So he's a beamer. He beams. So the reason this is such an issue. <laughs> Is that this is actually the episode where we plan to promote Jordy to chief engineer, right? Which is right? something that happens later on in the series. It it, it does happen later on, um, but the uh, the insightful viewer will recognize that we really don't have much of a place for Jordy for most of the first season. He's just, just kind of there, just there, and uh, this is why um, a couple of higher ups were really just not for. <laughs> promoting him to chief engineer i guess yeah they, um, they had a problem with lavar specifically that's how i would put it well lavar but i mean just also the idea of a black man being in a position of authority right know? um real dinosaurs really makes my skin crawl here on that yeah, and I I know quite a few of us were all pretty enraged by that. I mean, not just because of the injustice of it all, but because of how many rewrites it required for scripts that were already in development. And, um, you know, basically just having to have Jory stuck on the bridge all the time. Right. Um, there was well, a lot, yeah. There was a lot of grumbling, especially once this episode had really gone into production because people less forward thinking people on the set or in the writer's room would say like oh we can have 
We can have a map relationship, but we can't have a black chief engineer. Like, really? Yeah, well, it it did help that the map relationship on display was white. Yeah, it made it more palatable um, to yeah. those producers who kind of blocked the Geordi decision. Well, I think a lot of the producers were maps, actually. Um, God bless them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it that explains the uh, the presence of of Will on the show to begin with. Yeah. Oh, it definitely does. Right. And. Uh... I, I think I think Will definitely did his share of of favors in getting into that set, you know, as he should. Um, right. But you know, just just because just because the producers are matched does not excuse their racism, obviously. No, you can't. Um, you can't just uh, throw around your minority card in the to as an excuse to disenfranchise other minorities. It's just it's just no. not how it works. No, it's it, it's not fair. And it's not right. No. And basically what happened was we kind of just had to wait it out and wait for uh, one of them to die before we could go ahead with that uh, that in-universe promotion there. But luckily, uh, Which thankfully did eventually happen. Yeah, yeah. Luckily that man died and we were able to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, thank God. LeVar was ecstatic about it because his amount of screen time just shot up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank God for that. But Thank God for that. So... We have those two engineers, they come on with the Traveler, and, like, the the setup is that the Traveler and this other engineer are there to monkey with the um, engines of the ship to give it, like, a an increase of efficiency, but nobody really can figure yeah. out how they're doing it, because other ships in the, in the Federation have gotten it, but nobody knows why, or how, really. So, everybody's suspicious. And, uh, Riker is... Riker is almost uncharacteristically concerned with this yeah. engineering minutia. It's it is strange because Riker's kinda like this cowboy figure who's down to go in the away team and do all this exciting stuff and have sex with women. He's a Kirk stand in. He's a Kirk stand in, and very rarely is Kirk like, Oh, we could get two percent more efficiency to our engines if we just adjusted these tachyon <laughs> yeah. emitters. You know, yeah. it's it's just not it doesn't make sense for him to really be into this. Like, I get him kind of wanting to stick it to this guy who is uh, undermining him to his face when he's like, oh, I don't want to talk right. to you. I got to right. talk to the captain like that makes sense. Right. But Riker's um, yeah. enthusiasm to be on this assignment in the first place. Like, why do you need any? Yeah, the, the, the show, the show opens with him being antagonistic towards this idea to begin with. Right. Whereas you would expect, like, in later episodes when Jordy is the chief engineer, he would be the one dealing with this kind of stuff. And there would just be no higher up there at all. Because no. there doesn't need to be. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, they're, but, they're in the engine room doing their thing. And this is where Wesley is introduced to the story. Because Wesley, for, <laughs> for some reason, is just there working in the engine room. Despite... Yeah, and... and uh... Yeah. Is is this is this a normal thing for civilians to be working in the engineering? I, I don't think room? it's a normal thing. I um I like to believe that it's not. Cause... What do civilians do on the Enterprise? Actually, I'm I'm really kind of racking my brain here. They well, work they, in the cafeteria. They, there is no cafeteria because they they just materialize their food. They have a barber. Okay, so there's one job. Okay, um, and I think it's really just families of crew members. Right. 
that there is yeah. a school. Yeah. They always mention like when um, when Worf's kid is on board, he's always going to school with the other children. There are school scenes. Yes. So, but yeah, so there's really no reason for Wesley to be in engineering. No, there's not. But plot convenience, because he has to display his wunderkind uh, style to the traveler. <laughs> And Wesley's like, oh, you know, the way you're working on this engine isn't just time and space, but thoughts and feelings, too. Just something completely ridiculous. And the Traveler's like, you can't say that around here. They'll burn you alive like a witch or you know, whatever. Yeah, which, which, first of all, they wouldn't. Right. And second of all, any schmuck could, could state that and be considered special by this alien i guess it takes because... a, it takes a lot to extrapolate that from like a shitty 3d rendering of the enterprise surrounded by party streamers that was on their console it, 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 <laughs> it takes a lot to extrapolate that but also i mean you could just transplant some hippie sitting next to this alien and the alien would think he's a genius <laughs> i mean hippies do often operate on a higher level of of cognition to be fair they do to be fair so this is the first glimpse of the the Wesley Traveler relationship, which, regardless of how well you think it works, and for what reasons, has a completely different tone than all of Star Trek. I want to say, yeah, and yeah, and and we 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 talked about this while we were watching the episode where the A plot, it's it's hard to separate this into A plots and B plots because they're they overlap quite a bit, hmm. but if if you consider the Enterprise getting stranded and the crew having to figure out what's going on the A plot, then the B plot would be Wesley and this alien's relationship, which reads almost like E.T. Yes, that's a, that's a, you said that uh, when we were watching it, that's a really good way of putting it because it's very soft and it's very tender. Um, it's this, this very higher level force interacting with um, somebody slightly below his level but it's somebody that he's a real affection for and because of that mm -hmm. when i think of sci-fi for example i think of like cold and hard and maybe tense but not very emotional um and this is a very very emotional relationship even when it's not like a highly charged moment it's just a lot like i said a lot of tenderness and that tone does not gel well with the show at any point in its time. Yeah, I think I think that's a good word is the tenderness bit. I mean, it's it's really just dealing with the fact that your main character is a child here, right? right. Which, I mean, yeah, you you could just bring up so many points throughout the course of the show where that just does not gel. It would have, and worked. I, I think that probably why a lot of people dislike wesley it would have worked better and i think this would exacerbate some of the problems people have with wesley but this episode in particular would have worked better with if wesley was a younger child i think um because at times the way that the traveler talks to him and interacts with him is like one is interacting with with a very young child and i'm not mm. sure if that's like a way of communicating uh just how extra Alien. dimensional the, the traveler yeah. is but yeah when you have a kid who's like i don't know 14 15 at the time maybe 16 you, you kind of that's where you start transitioning to 
talking to them more like an adult. Even if they are, you know, just a super teenager. You can't, yeah. you can't use your soft voice and, like, you know, pet their hair. You can't do that. I mean, I think I think that the Traveler interacts with the adults in that way, too. And, in, in, in like, in a certain way, he just takes a liking to Wesley that kind of opens that character up to interacting with him more like that. I uh, like you said, I, th- I think I think it was a way to kind of highlight how uh, superior he is. Mm. Uh, maybe it doesn't play so well because of our you know preconceived notions. I suppose of where a teenager would be at that point in in their mental thing. You know, they're thinking about everything really. Um, it's it's less about the traveler, I guess, and more about the way Wesley reciprocates the relationship. Yeah, because you have Wesley, like, he sits on that stool behind the Traveler, and he's just, like, sitting, like, a... like a In, like, a very suggestive way. Yeah, but also somewhat innocently, like a child would. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, Wesley's always seen, like, playing with toys that he's built, and, like, just always acting incredibly juvenile. Ne- there's never any of the the angst or the the emotional frustration that like a teenager would typically have and i'm not saying that he always has to be angry or anything but they just always show him as a very not yet developed individual yeah that and that's a good point i mean think back on the naked now how if if there was that angst and that angst was what caused the conflict that would probably be actually a little more interesting right you know if if wesley is like going on going at captain picard like oh well you're not the captain anymore you always do this that and the other but you never uh let me on the bridge like you know something like that would make a lot more sense than uh yeah this unilaterally positive childlike personality as as a mongoloid plays with blocks on the floor next to you yes right But yeah, that that is a good point, and I I think we're kind of honing in on why Wesley is kind of poorly written so far, right? And it's it's I think it's a too reductive to just say, oh, he's a child, child shouldn't be on Star Trek. Finish like that's the that's the end of my criticism. I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. I, I think the character as set up like a prodigious youth could have been. A, a valuable story writing tool as a character yeah. it could have it could have but unfortunately they just they just did not take advantage of that opportunity whatsoever and instead decided to make him some kind of weird wish fulfillment character but yes. yeah we all know why that happened indeed um indeed so so uh go moving on. along with the plot um the traveler uh unbeknownst to everyone at this point right right uh i guess passes out while doing his calculations yeah he like like just kind of throws himself onto the the console like the 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 physical acting of it was kind of out there for me but yes he he passes (laughs) out on the console and this is what causes the the thrust of the episode like because he's passing out while the engines are being monkeyed with the engines like supercharge and uh the enterprise is thrown across the galaxy light hundreds of light years away mm-hmm. and, and that's that's where the real of the episode starts yeah 
And it's also at this moment, I think, that Wesley is tuned into the fact that it's the Traveler who is uh, the Force here and not the, the human engineer that he came with. Because he tries to go to yeah. Riker and he's like, Riker, <laughs> Mr. Riker, um, the that engineer's a fake. It's all it's all the Traveler. It's all this alien guy. And Riker's like, I don't fucking have time for this. Go play with your toys, Wesley. <laughs> and yeah, there's another thing where we, and we discussed this while we were watching it. We've seen this kid. Riker has watched this kid with his head in his hands save the Enterprise from complete disaster. And he still just has no respect for them. Right. He Wesley saved the Enterprise while drunk, while an inept Riker could only watch. And he just never, <laughs> never gives him the time of day. <laughs> and I, I think this actually continues. Wesley just gets zero respect for anything he does, despite being the most conveniently written teenager in like all of television. He gets a promotion in this episode. And people he gets a promotion. For doing nothing. For doing nothing, and despite working in engineering already. Right. They're like, alright, you're officially Ensign Crusher. And then Dr. Crusher's <laughs> like, what? I got a demotion? No. No, that's not what happens. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's just baffling because if you go to the naked now and like, oh, Wesley, you saved the ship, you're promoted to honorary ensign. That makes sense because he did something. In this episode, he doesn't do anything, but Picard has this talk with the traveler. It's like, Wesley's destined for great things. He's like Mozart. And I'm going to take three minutes to explain to you what a Mozart is. Um, and yeah, so Picard's like, oh, I better promote him. But the the Traveler explicitly says to not make Wesley aware of how good he is. Like, don't don't monkey with it. Just try to nurture him. And you would think that you wouldn't want to have a very inconspicuous... Um, or is it conspicuous? Oh, my God, I don't know what, what that word means. A very obvious promotion. Like, a very... Conspicuous. Conspicuous, okay, very conspicuous promotion where everybody would question why he got it. But of course, nobody would question it because that's uh, there's only a minute left in the episode, so who cares? <laughs> yeah, uh, apparently Wesley is going to develop the ability to change the universe with his thoughts, which is a nice little bit of foreshadowing here. Yeah, uh, I don't even know what to say about that. You, you know. You can take it at face value and appreciate just how ridiculous that is. Like I was uh, saying before, ultimately does not go anywhere satisfying. So it's um, really... every Any amount of frustration or any amount of dislike you have for this decision is ultimately um, vindicated. Because there was no payoff for this. That That is good. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So anyway, they have this issue. Um, weird things begin happening on the Enterprise once they are in this far-flung region of space. Everybody's yeah, people start seeing things. People start seeing things, and this is like a pretty cool concept, I think, because um, people are seeing things from their past and their memories. Um, for example, Worf sees like his childhood pet. You know, Yar is fixated on rape. Um, yep, yep. that one guy in the cafeteria is imagining himself in a string quartet it's it's a, a whole lot of these weird looks into people's psyche which I think is also not explicitly quote Star Trek but I think works very well 
Um, but yeah. originally, every single member of the bridge was going to have like their own little moment. We see Picard when mm-hmm. he meets his mother. See some of the other ones. Uh, like some of them got cut. You know, Riker was going to have to confront like a bunch of his ex lovers. Like it'd be a huge group. It'd be pretty funny. Um, Crusher was going to meet her late husband. It's a little mo- emotional moment. But Jordy's scene was the one that the uh, the writers are the most excited about. Yes. Yeah. So Jordy was going to encounter like a futuristic analog of the KKK and stand up to them. You know, it, he would it would be something that would like maybe traumatize him in the past. But he, now as an adult, as a member of the Enterprise, he would have the strength to uh, to stand up literally in the face of racism. But, mm-hmm. you know, the producers, they came down on it. You know, Gene was on their side. They said, oh, that's not Star Trek. You got to leave that in roots. We're not doing that kind of stuff on this show. Um, and it really that that precipitated the decision um, with the who was going to be the head of engineering. So we really should have seen that coming in, in a way, in an unfortunate way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, we both thought it was a great idea, but right, they didn't they didn't listen to us. No, I mean, when did they? Huh? Right. But we, we had a lot of good ideas, but it's never we did have a lot of good ideas. You know, sometimes they'd go through. A lot of the times they wouldn't, but. I guess that's just show business, right? It, it is. It is. Um, so yeah, there are so, the, all mean, these speaking scenes. Of, speaking of these scenes, I want to I want to spend a little bit of time on these scenes because they gave us quite a bit of grief. They did. Boy, did they. Um, <laughs> and first, I'd like to talk about the pig. Right. Not not a pig. A Klingon targ or whatever. Targ. Targ. The pig. Right. The pig. So <laughs> Gene brought her in from his, uh, and I can only use so many quotation marks, exotic pet collection. Yeah. Um, along with the cat from the same scene. Which was and, far less uh, exotic. Far less exotic, but he still considered her so. Right. I think it was something about um, like the size of its tail. <laughs> something like that. But anyway, the, the the pig took a whole day, if if you remember. The the crew spent hours trying to wrangle that thing into that stupid fur coat. Yeah, because it had to look. It could <laughs> look like a pig, obviously. Right, right. Um, and, you know, they did a fantastic job with that fur coat and the little horns on it. But um, we were all just standing on set all day with the executive producer, just pleading with Gene over the phone to get back on set. Because it smelled so bad. I mean, and literally you remember a pig. how long? It, yeah, but you remember how long it took to get the smell out of our clothes. It was right. awful. Oh my god! So I mean, we're on the set for hours, hours with just this pig running around. People trying to like wrangle it. It smells so bad. And hours later, Gene finally shows up, and he's the only one this pig will listen to, I guess. Um, and he gets her to stand still so we could finally shoot the scene and rap for the day. And <laughs> I never felt so good going home. Oh, yeah. At least up until that point. I, I want, not everybody has worked on, on a set, like production. I want you to realize that these studio studios are just like enclosed cubes in the middle of lost fucking Angeles with the hot yeah. sun pouring down on them. Try, imagine yourself just being stuck in that with, with, uh, perhaps the worst smelling animal on the planet. Or, you know, at least what we thought it was. 
than what we thought it was. Right. Bit of a plot twist for the audience here. Um, so we wrap up, go home. Next day we convene on set. And uh, we're going to finish up some shots with the cat since we didn't get to obviously do that. We spent so much time on the pig. Um, and we notice the smell still lingering just as, just as strong as it was the day before. And it's uh, really going to take me some time to kind of get through this because I already want to throw up. But it turns out the smell was not, it was not the pig. Um, turns out Denise was on a shower strike to protest her character's lack of involvement in the previous episode. She was very, very worried about being written out. And, very worried. And if you go back and watch the previous episode, uh, Yar had nothing really to do. Um, yeah, she kind of just stood on the bridge. And, you know, that, that hits home even harder when you had that episode even before that, very much focused on her. Right. And I think she was looking for, you know, a little more attention than what she got. Well, she ultimately got it. I'll tell she you definitely that. got it, as, as we will see. But uh, these kinds of episodes really only ramped up um, as, as we approach uh, the skin of evil. Yes, which is the, uh, the denouement of Denise's arc on production. Yeah. That, yeah. that is a story for another time. Um, but what is the story for this time is one of the, those, like an example of that attention that Denise did get, which Yard did get a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, she was not so happy about this one. Um, so like I said, there's all these scenes of the characters, uh, encountering bits from their past and these like hallucinations, you know, the pig being one example of those. So Denise's Yars uh, flashback is to being on her home planet. Like she sees her cat, and that triggers this memory of her being back on her home planet, where she's like getting cornered by a rape gang, which it's explicitly said to be the, the phrase "rape gang." Well, yes, rape gang. That aspect of her character wasn't set in stone until Jean met Denise. Um, originally she was just kind of like a plain Jane security crew, you know, a female security officer. That was basically it. You know, that's, that's shocking enough that you didn't really need to develop the character more. Um, but <laughs> Jean met her and he, he suddenly had this idea that she would have this backstory of her, like getting raped by the rape gangs and dealing with trauma and PS PTSD. Um, it was, it was a pretty inspired, uh, take on the character and it, just from meeting her, it shows that you know, inspiration can really come from anywhere. Um, but Denise, on the other hand, was not super happy with that. She didn't... She took umbrage specifically to reading the line, quote, rape gang. Yeah, and I don't think that was the attention that she wanted. It was not. It was not. And when you do these things, you know, these, these shower strikes, uh, you kind of... What is the opposite of currying favor? Like you court, uh, I don't know, discord around you when you disfavor, disfavor perhaps when when you rile people up intentionally. So I yeah. I'm not happy with how the whole Denise thing went, but I can't say I really blame any of the the actors involved for responding how they did. It was just a very unfortunate series of events. Yeah, it couldn't really be helped. It could not um, be helped. I I do I do take umbrage. 
I do take umbrage with the phrase rape gangs, however. Yeah. Um, insofar as it's nothing that any human being in real life has said or ever would say. You don't, like, gangs do not exist to rape. There right. is no rape gang that just subsists for years on the idea that the people in the gang go out and rape. Yeah, because it would be like, oh, you know, violent gangs. That's a very common phrase. Or just gangs. Right. Like, we are a gang. Like, maybe that's something people would say. But right. the specific label of rape gang, like, that's... You can, you, can, you can have a gang that goes out and incidentally gang rapes someone. I get it. Right. But you don't have a rape gang. At least no, one, no one's going to refer to a gang as a rape gang. Maybe they did make their gang based on the assumption that they would go out and rape every night. But it's like that's not normal enough for anyone to refer to them as rape gangs. Did Yara grow up on a planet where rape gangs were common? Maybe I, she did. I, but I guess so. I guess so. But even if that was the case, they would just be referred to as a gang because on that planet, um, gang and yeah, rape gang be would be synonymous. <laughs> right. Right. Maybe it was a, a, a poly gang culture or something. You know, like they had different kinds of gangs for different things. Oh, maybe you'd have like a rape gang and like uh, doing your tax returns gang. Both positive forces of positive and negative. Yeah, yeah, really a dichotomy. Really doing your taxes, raping. Yeah, two sides of the same coin. I like to <laughs> truly. But all that um... stuff in the episode uh, itself was pretty interesting. Like I liked uh, the scene with Picard's mother, where he's like, "Mama." Mamon. Yeah, and, and who retreated retreated to yet another uh bit of French dialogue while both he and his mother speak in British accents. Yes. Um I guess I can kind of suspend my disbelief to the point that yeah, maybe uh cultures have kind of crossed over enough at this point that French people would speak with British accents. But they would I speak French is the thing. There's plenty of examples of non- uh dominant uh cultures existing within other cultures and within those like little family bubbles they generally speak the language that they um grew up with or that they're more accustomed to so well like, so picard is from france right so if he let's say he's in france you speak french and then he moves somewhere else which i'll accept where they where he learns to speak english and his mom did too because she speaks english too um if they go home in their house, they would probably speak French there. Um, well, it, it just doesn't track is... to me. Like if that they, because if the, if in France they speak English, then why does Picard know French? What I, okay, what I'm saying is, oh, yeah, why does he know French? Yeah, yeah, and that, that's what I'm saying too. Is it's it's very odd to me that they treat French almost as his second language. Right. When it it is a second language. I mean, he obviously speaks English fluently. Right. But why? Why? And so he refers to his mother as Mama. Except she speaks English. So he wouldn't really she do She speaks that. English with an English accent, yeah. Because very, when, you're, very odd. when you're a kid, you're not, you learn how to call your mom and dad by the words that they teach you. And if she's going to teach him French, then she would logically speak French. And if she's speaking French enough that that is how Picard learns to address his mother, then one could reason that they would speak French in any of their interactions. Yeah. 
I don't know, maybe language has developed in, in as yet unforeseen ways in Star Trek. Oh no, you and... see the universal translator in Picard's ear and his mother's ear. Does the universal translator work on French? <laughs> it's too alien of a language to uh, to be in the translator. Um, but yeah, some of those scenes were good. I like the one where Picard steps out from the elevator just into space. Yeah, that was cool. It was it was yeah. such an intriguing thing, such an intriguing idea that it was so so much more interesting than anything else that came before it in Star Trek. Um, yeah. And I, putting aside like the the complete nitpicking about the language, which is not really a, a notable issue, I liked the scene with his mom too. Like I thought that was cool because you can see like, you know, Picard recognizes that this is not his mother, that it's some alien thing going on, but he's still obviously very very emotionally affected by. by yeah, seeing it's, her. it's a moment of vulnerability. Yeah. For him, which so, I guess we haven't been treated to as much. No. Yet. But that worked. That worked for me. Um, yeah. All, basically all of it did like even that they spend a lot of time lingering on the guy playing in the swing, string quartet but it was that key that was the first hint we saw of, that something was going on and uh i liked how it interrupted and completely upended the the, the tone of everything it was yeah like, yeah yeah because when the idea is like oh they're in this strange environment and like they don't really know what's going on well we're gonna we're gonna give you some of that it's like you're Here's a Baroque string quartet for two minutes. And you're like, what? And yeah, it works. It was it was funny how how it was kind of interspersed between the scenes of Picard running around all yeah, and then they kept frazzling. Yeah, <laughs> and then it just turns out the guy's what eating lunch or something. Right, right, and he's just so dissatisfied with his life that he's imagining himself uh, doing something. That he wants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was pretty good. It was um, good. So. Yeah, they eventually, Picard calls a state of emergency. Um, they run through uh, off screen, Riker realizes he was wrong about the Traveler. Right. And we have that um, long and drawn out scene in, I think, the medical bay. Yeah, pressure keeps reviving him. Yeah, and the the guy is saying things like rather cryptically. And there was a really cool line that I liked there, where um, I think it's Riker, might have been Picard, who's like, "Well, if you're this being, you know, why haven't you reached out to us before?" And the traveler just kind of like laughs at him for being so arrogant, and tells him as much. And I thought that was cool because it it didn't really break with the um that kind of condescending, gentle tone that the Traveler had throughout the whole episode, while still just kind of putting um, whoever said the line in their place. It, it really sold the uh, the omniscient, um, higher-level being thing that, that they've been going for. Yeah, 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 that, that, was, that was a good choice, I think. Probably sold it in a way that uh, Delancey's character didn't quite hit the mark at first. Yeah, I think the reason that Q developed how he did was largely because of the way Delancey played the character. Um, when, when you kind of have this prankster uh, kind of feel to him, you, you want to play that up. You're not going to ask John Delancey, oh, come on to our set and, de and deliver a dramatic three-minute monologue, right? You're, you're going to ask yeah, him to come on yeah. and put on a silly outfit and um, dance around for an episode. <laughs> 
That's right. That's right. Good old John. So <laughs> this is uh, around the time where the alien tells him, the traveler, sorry, tells, tells Picard that Wesley's special, right? Yeah, he says, everybody um, out of the room except Picard. Gotta talk yeah, to you. Yeah, well, so he says, he says, I'd like a word with the captain alone. <laughs> yes. He says, he says it kind of like a, kind of like a, a white 15 year old girl. Um, There's a lot of that going on. Which which was kind of a weird tone for him to take, but uh, so we have that bit, and um, then it's time to save the day, right? We have to rely on him to save the day. They go down to engineering, um, and actually, here's here's a fun bit. The whole Act Five engine room scene was yes. pretty much entirely improv. The climax of the episode. <laughs> no one really planned for this in a way that they should have right because the the script called for a much more interactive set but because of time constraints we really had no choice but to stage all of that action at that that big static engine room table the team had made they kind of cobbled it together for the pilot and we never got around to updating it right. in any way because what what's supposed to be happening is like it's this dramatic we got to get the engines working all right, you pull that lever, hit those buttons, um, you know, work on this console. Like, a very dramatic, um, I don't really know, like, machining kind of scene. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, earlier in the episode, you you have, like you said about the, you know, the, the little streamers going around the Enterprise and stuff like that. You have kind of a visual representation of what's going on. Right. Right? When Wesley and the Traveler are looking at the computer and trying to, like, configure whatever's going on there. Configure. Um configure what did i say configurate yeah that that's the conversate of configure <laughs> that's the conversate of star trek yeah um yeah they're trying to configure the the engine or whatever um but this whole scene everyone's just sitting at this flat table right um kind of miming working um yeah like they're just tapping on black screens with nothing on them yeah and I think it goes without saying that the entire team did a great job of pretending to work off these little panes of plastic. Um, but Menyuk, the, the actor for The Traveler, I think he really stole the show when he, he right at the height of the scene, shoved his hand into a hollow compartment of the table. And all of us, I mean, the whole crew was so taken aback that we had to retake that scene. It, but luckily it, that allowed us to give his resourceful contribution there a much greater presence in frame well it was so uh, i really loved that. it was so perfect because the way that the camera was was positioned you couldn't see what was in that compartment so you're the viewer is like oh yeah of course of course one would use that that's there to of course yeah yeah but from his to perspective your it's just it's just a plastic cubby with nothing in it and he yeah. he nailed it he nailed it um, we we talked before about kind of you know Will Wheaton learning improv from the guy. Well, you can see why he's such a uh, fit to be the teacher. Right, right, and I mean just his his ability to shove his hand into that hole, I think speaks volumes right. here. Well, it's 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 not the ability to do it; it's the ability to know to do it. You know, to know to do it, and yeah, it, it's really what resulted was true movie magic there. Mm-hmm. and i think the results of that scene speak for themselves it's a very fitting climax for the episode it is it's it's 
enthralling, engrossing, enticing. It's it's all you want from a climax. Um, and so they they spend a tense couple of minutes at the table, furiously slapping their hands on it, and the traveler disappears, and um, the Enterprise makes it back to where they were before this sleigh ride. Well, let's not let's not forget the contributions from everybody on board the Enterprise crew. How they had to hold their hands up to the sky and help the traveler charge his spirit bomb with their energy. That's right. That's right. Um, and it, <laughs> Picard gives up immediately. <laughs> right. <P> Picard. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So he makes an announcement on the on the PA, and he's like, "Everybody on board the Enterprise, it is absolutely vital." that we all send our mental energy to support the traveler. He's working very hard and he needs us to all envision a positive outcome of this to work. So he ends that announcement and then two seconds later, he's like, it's not working. What's, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. He gave up very quickly. He Record time. Record time on giving up. Record time. Yeah. Um, but luckily it all works out in the end. The traveler disappears somewhere, I guess. I, kind of was under the assumption that he died but i guess he does not yeah he just um you would think he died but they reintroduce him and he's in two ep two more episodes i believe three total yeah yeah so it's uh can't wait to see him again on our podcast and i think he's so excited five. we got a way to go we do uh, I'll, I'll be happy to see him again yeah it's um right now we're flung out in space 700 million light years away from him but over the course of four seasons, we'll cover that distance and get back to him. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. Any other? Uh, but yeah, you know, for, for all its all its faults, all its faults, this episode was pretty entertaining and pretty decent. It was. It was. It did a lot of things right. It had some stumbles. It's still a season one episode, but um, definitely the most enjoyable and the most interesting by far. I would say the most coherent too. Yeah. Um, and just, we talked about the tone, just by establishing the Star Trek tone, just a very, very valuable episode as well. Yeah. So, good job. Good job. You've, uh... Good job. Uh, where no one has gone before on this Valentine's Day, you've won our hearts. Um, so... That's right. That'll do it for this episode of The Readier Room. Join us next time where we tackle the next episode. And until then, everybody... Stay ready. The troublesome little man child. Consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. Beginning, 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 beginning.